Good morning, church. My matchstick moment is just to be here with you guys. It's been three weeks. That's a long time, isn't it? Uh, it just seems to have been longer this year than previous years. I don't know why. But it's just wonderful to see you all. Uh, this is definitely um, the best moment of the year so far. Thank you for the song leaders. Uh, just how blessed we are, hey, just to have these people who lead us like this in just praise and worship. So thank you so much. Um, I want to share a brief matchstick moment. Ludovic, a young man there. I just want to hold him up. You know, we're doing some Bible studies with him, and I'm just super, super encouraged by uh, just the way he prepares, his discipline, the questions he asks. So don't want to embarrass you, Ludovic, but I just want to hold you up, man. You know, you, you challenge me in terms of, you know, just, just the way that you love God's Word and the... Yeah, just the questions you ask, so insightful, and just your humility. So, amen. That's, that's Ludovic. Great. So, we're going to be speaking this morning about church as a house of prayer. Um, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. You know, firstly, just some, some context. What I'm going to read now happens in the first week. Uh, sorry, in, in the last week of the life of Jesus, he has entered Jerusalem with much fanfare. Uh, you know, the people have cheered him, they welcomed him like they would a king. Uh, but over time, as they, as they hear the teachings of Jesus, especially the religious leaders, uh, you know, they, they're not so fired up by the, you know, by the message that Jesus was, was bringing them, and they were increasingly threatened by him. And this confrontational act we're going to read about now, um, challenged the heart of the status quo, and most likely instigated his arrest. Okay, we don't know the exact timing. This was the straw that broke the camel's back, as far as uh, Jerusalem and particularly the religious leaders were concerned. So Mark 11 from verse 15 reads, When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those singing, selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. Now the common interpretation of this passage is that Jesus was upset by those who had commercialized, you know, the temple and were making money at the expense of others. Now that is part of it certainly, but there is much more going on here. You see, in biblical times, prophets in the Old Testament would, would act out their message. I think the scholars call it sign acts. We would probably call it a, a visual aid, a non-verbal way of communicating. And in this act of going into the temple and upsetting the commercial activities, uh, Jesus is actually making a point much deeper than just I'm upset by people you know, making money or, or running a business in the temple. Um, now, just a few quick examples to remind you of, of sign acts or prophets acting out their message. And you can check this up, you know, check this out your own time. In Isaiah 20, we read that Isaiah walked around naked and barefooted for three years as a picture of what God had prophesied would happen to their enemies. 
Now, the enemies would be led away by Assyria, barefoot and naked. And then in Jeremiah 19, uh, we see that God has instructed Jeremiah to take a jar, a, a, a clay jar, and to smash it before the people. And this was a way of warning Israel um, that God would shatter the nation if they did not repent. And then finally, many other examples. But Ezekiel, we read, lay on his side for a year to symbolize the siege of, of Jerusalem. That's in Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, so Jesus overturning the tables was, was a prophetic acting out. And it was an acting out of God's judgment on the temple. You know, Jesus himself explains this uh, in verse 17. Firstly, he quotes from Isaiah 56. My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 7. But you have turned it into a den of thieves or robbers, your translation might say. Now, you can read these chapters again in, in, in your own time. But to summarize, Isaiah 56 is about how God welcomes foreigners into the temple, into his family. Foreigners who, who commit themselves to him and his law. And it explains how they will be blessed. They will, they will be filled with joy in God's house of prayer. God designed his temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, Judah had neglected, you know, their calling to be the light for the Gentiles and to show mercy to foreigners. Uh, they got to the point where they did not welcome foreigners, non-Jews, into, into God's family, into his house, into the temple. They had not repented over hundreds of years. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, this is hundreds of years later, the temple was still not God's house of prayer for all nations. Now, the other passage that Jesus quotes here from Jeremiah 7 about them turning it into a den of, of thieves. In Jeremiah 7, we read of a promise that God will pour out his wrath on those who oppressed others and engaged in, in, in idolatry. Um, they were called thieves. Now, another way to translate this word thieves, apart from robbers uh, or bandits, it actually means rebels. Or brigands, N.T. Wright uses his fancy words, a brigand, you know, like a rebel against the system. And the point is that God considered Judah, his nation of Judah, as rebels who were using the temple as a front for their own agenda. Okay, so it is as general as that. You know, if we, if we misuse God's church, if we you know, work for our, our own benefit, things that serve us or our people group, right, in the context of a family of all nations. God sees us as rebels against his will. Okay, so that's the kind of the deeper meaning of what is, of what is going on here. The temple had become a sham. You know, the religious leaders were using it for their, for their own purposes. They'd become rebels in God's eyes, no, long, no longer behaving as his people. No, but this was not always the case. If we go back in time, 900 years before the time of Jesus to the time of King David, we see how the temple, tabernacle back then, was established in Jerusalem as a house of prayer and how it was used as a place to listen to God and to do his will. So um, please turn with me to First Chronicles 15. I'll read from verse 25 to 28. 
Now, but before I, I do this, let, let me just explain that by this time, David has settled in um, in Jerusalem for a while. He fetches the Ark of the Covenant that King Saul had kind of neglected and forgotten about in some foreign land. And, you know, David has had plenty of time, you know, while on the run from Saul and also a son of his, um, to, I think, picture and imagine what this would look like. You know, King David coming back to the temple with, with the presence of, of God. You know, he had plenty of time to think about a royal entry into the city and to come up with a strategy. And, and we read here, as we're going to read now, that David did arrive as part of a big brigade, but not the kind of brigade and the entrance that one would expect from a king in that culture. First Chronicles 15 verse 25. Then David and the elders of Israel and the generals of the army went to the house of Obed-Edom to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant up to Jerusalem with a great celebration. And because God was clearly helping the Levites as they carried the ark of the Lord's covenant, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who carried the ark, and also the singers and Kenania, the, the choir leader. David was also wearing a priestly garment. So all Israel brought up the ark of the Lord's covenant with shouts of joy, the blowing of rams, horns and trumpets, the crashing of cymbals and loud playing on harps and lyres. We, we read that David arrives in Jerusalem with all the people of Israel with him. Now that's an hyperbole obviously because there's some people in Jerusalem who actually welcomed him, but certainly with a large number of, of people and they are singing a song. What song are they singing? It's actually the song that David had prepared specifically for this. We've called it Psalm 24. And this is what we read in Psalm 24, verse 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The King of glory is King David, surely, right? I mean, that's how it worked in those days in that culture. You know, the king would be carried on, you know, the poles and sitting on this kind of platform, uh, he'd be dressed in his royal regalia and be wearing his crown. Okay, so, you know, surely this is King David, right? But this is not the case, as we read in the next verse. Verse 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So King David enters to the song of praise, but he's not, he's not the king that the song is praising. No, the Almighty, he is the King of glory. And as this parade approaches Jerusalem, the crowd would have expected to see a long sort of march and progression of soldiers, followed by the king carried on this like ancient equivalent of a parade float, sitting on his throne, as I say, dressed in royal robes and wearing a heavy crown. What they actually saw was their new King David in front of the parade wearing uh, what is literally translated as a linen ephod, which is actually the undergarment that the priests wore. Okay. And he's dancing. That's the outfit and the approach that David chose for his big day. Not the expected royal robe and a crown, but simply wearing a very basic piece of underwear, priestly underwear. Now, there is a float at the back of the parade, but instead of you know, housing a, a, a throne for David to sit on, it holds the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's presence with them. 
You know, David, a man after God's heart, we know. He knew that God was the true king. David was just his servant. You know, I wonder how many of us, if we were in David's position, would have planned that kind of entry into Jerusalem. You know, I think I would have been tempted or probably would have defaulted to the, the traditional way. You know, that I was carried into the, I would be carried into the city on, you know, soldiers' shoulders, you know, as the king. I mean, I've suffered so long to finally be, you know, crowned king. I mean, surely that would be our right. You know, I would be tempted to think like that. But David knew that he was not the king. You know, that God Almighty is the king. And David was just his, his servant. And then when David gets to the town square, he arranges for a tent to be erected in the center of the, the town. Um, a tent in the form of the tent of meeting set up by, by Moses uh, called the tabernacle. Now this is a very basic, unimpressive covering for a, for a small wooden box. You know, the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's presence. So he sets this up and you would think that this would be a pretty simple thing to manage. Eh? I mean, pretty small structure. But we also read in chapter 16, and I'll leave this again for you to study this out if you want. Um, after, you know, bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant into the city, they sing a song of, of praise and thanksgiving uh, that was also composed by, by David, you know, specifically for this moment. And then David appoints people to serve in the tabernacle. Um, he appoints gatekeepers for protection. He appoints priests to offer sacrifices exactly as required by the law. And he appoints musicians and people who would continually offer prayer and praise to God. You know, David's first act as Israel's king bring, after bringing in the covenant was to reconstruct Moses' tent of meeting in the city center. And after this, David goes into the palace and he sits down with his board of advisors and he lays out his plan. And we read that David hired, amongst other people, and you, you can total this up if you look at the families and the number of sons, etc. He hired 288 worship leaders, prophets and elders to pray and worship in the tent. Probably 24-7, all day and all night. Can you imagine being in that strategy meeting, right? And, um, you know, David lays out his plans. I would probably ask, um, uh, mighty King David, I'm just checking you. You know, what, what, what are you actually saying? You know, we're at war with our, our enemies. You know, we're surrounded by our enemies. We need to beef up our defenses. We need to increase, you know, the defense budget here. And you're spending our budget on prayer? And you imagine David answering with, with a smile, yep, that's exactly what I'm doing. And that's what David did for the city three years of his reign as Israel's king. He installed gatekeepers and worship and prayer leaders 24 hours a day in a simple tent covering a small wooden box. Why? Because it was the dwelling place of the God of Israel. It was the very presence of God. It was the intersection between heaven and earth. It's where they connected with God. It's where they spoke to God. It's where they had to listen to God. It's where they aligned themselves with God's will. That was David's priority. This is a house of prayer for all nations. David opened up 
you know, the temple, those who wanted to worship God and know God, regardless of where they were from. You know, for a while during the reign of, of David and, and partially, you know, the, the reign of Solomon, this was a house of prayer for all nations. So David's priorities looked like a, a disaster on paper. Um, you know, I don't think it would get a, a high mark for, for a strategy uh, assignment, bongs. But hey, he built his life radically on prayer. God took care of everything else. And whichever way you look at it, David's reign was a highlight for Israel. There was peace and safety in the city. There was prosperity in the economy. Um, there was care for the, you know, for the poor and needy. A divided kingdom had been unified by David. And I love this quote from David Fritsch. He writes, The presence of God was David's political strategy. The presence of God was his strategy. Now this year we want to listen and see how God continues to guide us and bless us you know, and bring people and funding and everything else we need for our church to be healthy again, to be revived. And God has done some amazing things already. And I am convinced it is because we started, we've got a long way to go, but we started being a house of prayer last year. I remember those first six months, whatever it was, Labuya has shared this often, I think, how a small, relatively small group of us got together just to pray, to call out to God and to listen. And God started answering. Our strategy for becoming a healthy church and growing for each of us to grow spiritually and for us to be the light of the world that draws people to God, our strategy is simple, to be a house of prayer a genuine house of prayer, and to listen to God. Prayer in the Bible is meant to connect us with God and to know and to understand His will and to align us with His will. That's the main purpose of prayer. David understood that. 288 people, 24-7, praising and listening to God. And that's how he rebuilt you know, the kingdom of Judah and why it was healthy for so long. And why the temple... Uh, became that intersection of heaven and earth and God really did dwell in that place for a while. Sadly, things went wrong and by the time that Jesus came on the scene, as we have read, in spite of many warnings, uh, Israel did not repent and by, by the time Jesus came, the temple was just totally corrupt. Right? It wasn't a house of prayer for all nations. It was a den of rebels. People were using God's temple for their own agendas. Please, we never do that, eh? And I think, you know, part of the challenge for me as I prepared this and I share this challenge with you is to think, um, whose agenda do we follow? Now, we call ourselves disciples, amen? Now, we desire to follow Jesus. We know the scriptures and what a disciple of Jesus is. We know that we are called to die to ourselves daily. To put aside our desires when they don't match up with the desires and the will of God. But I wonder how many of us still have as our priorities our desires. What I want for myself. If Jesus had to come into and spend some time with us as a church. And if he had to spend a week with you at home. What would he conclude about where your desires are? Would he maybe call us rebels against God's will? 
going through the motions and creating some kind of a system as they did in the time of Jesus, would he call us a den of rebels? I hope not. I don't think so. But we can always improve, and I'm not doing this to kind of guilt us out and, and to shame us. I'm doing this so that we can have a good, solid, deep introspection. Has church become a den of rebels? Or are we genuinely with the help of the Spirit, making every effort to align our lives and the choices we make and the thoughts we think and the actions we do, are we, are they aligned and guided by the will of God and what God wants for his people? Amen. To be a house of prayer for all nations. So we read that in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus ascended, that the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Roman Empire, never to be rebuilt. And this was warned, you know, throughout the Old Testament, by the Old Testament prophets and especially by Jesus. You know, he warned them, but people did not repent. And God destroyed the temple, the physical temple. Yet God is still present amongst us, right? Uh, who or what is the, the temple now under the new covenant? We are, right? We, we read in Hebrews 3 from verse 3 to 6. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. Listen to this. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We are the house of God. We are the temple of God. We are the presence of God in the world. God's people are where heaven and earth intersect. There, there are other passages. Let me just read First Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 17 as well. Reads, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For the temple is holy and you are that temple. I hope, church, that we appreciate what, what an important call this is, what an awesome, amazing call that we have and purpose of us together as, as a community. We are the house of God. Individually we are, yes, you know, the scriptures say that as well, but especially when we are together as a community. We are God's house, God's temple. And throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, God expects from his people to desire what he desires and to align ourselves with his will. That's the purpose of prayer, to connect with God in order to understand him, to really appreciate his love and to show love to him, but also to understand what, what God's desires are for us and for his people and for the world, and to align ourselves with God's great rescue project, now really returning everything to Eden, bringing redemption and restoration to all things. And we can only do that through prayer. Prayer connects us with God, helps us understand His desires and His will, but prayer opens us up for the powerful working of God's Spirit and to bring about that future in partnership with God and together as a community. We need to be, church, a house of prayer. 
And I, I stand before you embarrassed to say it, but I said I, I decided I'm going to say it. My prayer life over some years hasn't been great. That stunk. I've been busy, busy on ministry stuff, busy studying the Bible with people, busy teaching, busy studying through Rocky Mountain. I've been so involved in church for 30 years, but my prayer life has been like this. I can't remember who who quoted this, but man, someone said something like, man, every, every day you should pray for an hour. If you're really busy, pray for two hours. But I haven't. When I'm really busy, I'll pray for five minutes. And I guess I'm not the only one here, am I right? Okay. And I'm so grateful that, you know, for this, this holiday break we've had, um, during my, this time of year, I, I read. And I've read three great books on prayer. And um, I'll share with you guys on Wednesday, if you're interested, I've had more time now. But um, I am radical about changing my prayer life, really. No Lincoln vouch for me. I hope I'm getting into a prayer rhythm: morning, midday, and yes. evening prayers. Yes. Um, I believe in praying individually. I believe in praying with people. I believe in praying set prayers. I believe in praying situational prayers. I believe in praying prayers that God just puts on our heart, and that's what we read about in the Bible, church. That is God's desire for us. Too many Christians have been like me. That for some reason we think we don't need to pray. And I think what God has done for us and to us as a church in the last couple of years and the experience we had this year was just a conviction again that we need to be this house of prayer. And a house of prayer of all nations. Let's not lose sight of that. And that if you are in this church, if you are in any church, test your heart. Am I really helping build a house of prayer? Or would God call me a rebel? Because I'm following my own agenda, my own desires, my own schedule. My work comes first. My studies come first. My fitness comes first. My holidays come first. My Netflix comes first. Okay? What is getting in the way of us being this house of prayer church? God's taking me all over the place. I think I had some notes. We um, we have a revival campaign, and I think using the sort of, I don't know what else to call it, but God is reviving us as a church. He's put it on our hearts, the need for revival. And prayer and revival go absolutely hand in hand. Churches and church movements, whether it is global or denominational or local church, revival does not happen without prayer. Something will happen, but it's not going to be a God-led revival. A few quotes, and there are many. Wesley Duell says, If God's people hunger deeply enough, God will hear and send revival. God requires more than casual prayers for revival. He wants his people to hunger and thirst for his mighty working. Tim Keller, Revival is a resetting of our hearts and minds to align with God's will. That's prayer. You know, we read that the presence of God was the strategy of David. And the presence of God must be our strategy to build a healthy church. We must be a house of prayer. Everything else rests on that. And I remind us that in the Jewish mind, the purpose of prayer was to connect with God, to know him, but to seek his will and to partner with him in his will. It's to avail ourselves to be agents 
of God's will. And that does require us to reorder our desires and to reorder our affections and our priorities. Let me share, let me end with a quote from uh, Tyler Staten. When we pray, he says, when we pray, we step out of the fundamental reality of the world and into the fundamental reality of God. So we must begin by inviting God to reorder our affections. I suggest we all pray this month that God will reorder our affections, right? And listen to what he says. Okay. I see in myself many affections that compete with God's affections. I see in you, I know you. <laughs> I see in some of you distractions that you are chasing things and you're not even able to read your Bible or pray for half an hour a day. But there's plenty of time to do other things. Not that those things are, are necessarily wrong. I mean, I enjoy watching a next Netflix series. Amen. But if that comes at the expense of me being with God, there is a problem. How, how many hours does the average person spend on social media nowadays? And it's young and old. Four hours? Five hours? Seven hours. It's gone up since last week. It's inflation, right? Inflation's rising. It, and, you know, are you, you know, is all that time on social media convicting you of God's desires? Are you bringing about transformation? Is social media helping you become more like Jesus? These are the sort of questions, God, we need to be honest about. And we're not the only church in PE who struggles with this. I know that. Every church. But that, um, that doesn't give me any... It doesn't make me feel good because it doesn't seem that any church is able to address this. I know the secret. It's not a secret. I know the answer and so do you. It's to be a house of prayer. A genuine house of prayer then God will bring about the changes that we each need in our lives and he'll bring about the changes to this wonderful community I love so much. That we will be a house of prayer for all nations, that we will be the light in our city, that we will bring hope and justice to our city, that we will all be changing to become more like Jesus. We'll be putting deep roots down in Jesus and it will be noticed. Right? God will revive us as a church and he will bring about revival in our city through us. So I want to just leave you then with a couple of challenges. I've mentioned that coming out of this um, lesson, I really, I encourage us. Say God expects us to let a message like this get into our hearts and to hear what God tells us. How is he convicting you? I can't believe that there's nobody sitting here who doesn't need to change, that God doesn't want to see you grow in something. I do know there are a lot of things God wants us to push out of our lives. Things that we desire that are not in line with God's desires for us or for his creation. Then secondly, we are having a a midweek meeting on Wednesday. And we're going to, in that midweek meeting, discuss this lesson. I'm going to add one or two other things, practical things I haven't had a chance to do today. So please make the Wednesday midweek. As Lubuya shared, we're going to still decide where that's going to be. Um, And the challenge I want to give us is every Wednesday that we fast and pray. You do to the extent you can. I know my lovely wife and a few other sisters have been doing this for a long time. 
pray fast what you can. And then when we get together on Wednesdays like we do, we'll have a simple meal that we break our fast. I believe if every member of this church does that, that alone will tell God we're getting serious about this. Amen? So that's what we'd like to do starting this, this Wednesday. Let me end with a prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you so much, God. We learned so much from, from your word. We, I'm just reminded that the adjective that is used to describe you more than any other, God, is apparently that you're compassionate, God. Father, we, we pray to you as our Father in heaven. Um, understanding that heaven is the air around us, God. We, we, we breathe you, God. You, you, yeah. Um, help us to know you like that, that you are our loving Father who is close to us. And that you're a God of compassion. Father, we also know that you are a God of, yeah, of, of righteousness and even righteous anger. And you discipline your people. And Father, we, we are grateful for how you have been kind to us. And God, I speak for myself. I can't speak for the church, but I am grateful for how you have disciplined us, God. Just like a loving father disciplines his children, we need it, God. And Father, I pray that this year, starting this week, that this year we will truly become a house of prayer. That we will be like David and those other people that he appointed. That we would understand that our future is built on prayer. That's our strategy. And coming out of that, God, please guide us and make it clear to us how we should structure the church, how we should do small groups and meet and all the other things, God, that come from that. But I know, God, if we are a house of prayer, you'll make it clear to us. So we look forward, Father, to you are surprising us. Um, God, you probably, there's probably a curveball or two, Father. That's the way you tend to work. Amen. You know what we need, Father, and we pray that as we enter into the season of, of prayer and really taking prayer seriously, that we'll connect with you that you'll speak to us, that we will speak to you, and that you'll make it clear to us where we are falling short, and that you'll remind us of what your will is, God. Put your desires, the desires of your heart, in our heart, God. I pray that our desires will be your desires, and that we live that out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.